Hey everyone, welcome to Paper Boys this week. We have an exciting episode about the discovery of water plumes on Jupiter's moon Europa. Deja vu. Last week we were talking about Enceladus, but we're just on this interplanetary kick. It's yeah. too good to stop. Uh yeah, it was this was a really, really cool one to learn about. As you probably knew from last week, I can very easily nerd out about this stuff forever. We talk, you know, we got some surfing with Paul Rudd, <laughs> interplanetary surfing. Uh we got some endogenic discoveries and i don't know all kinds of cool new words that we learned and uh silly jokes and stuff if you've ever had the feeling of sadness that you won't live long enough to know more about human interplanetary exploration and its exploits uh this is an episode for you yeah we invented a new word it's true stay tuned and enjoy to discover all of these fun new facts Welcome to Paper Boys, the weekly podcast where we unravel the research behind the latest major headlines in science. I'm your host today, James, along with fellow co-host Charlie, just like every episode. Yeah, except the I feel like it's here. now becoming, we're now going deeper into the, yeah, I'm always here, James. <laughs> Eventually, we're <laughs> going to have to spin this joke around somehow, but I w- that wasn't one, a joke. I was serious. One week, I just won't be here. Yes. And then you'll have to come up with something else to say. <laughs> You're like... It's a bad, bad joke. Yeah, you can use my AI voice as a replacement. Yeah, watch out, Charlie. Your job's going to be automated. I'm going to be deep faked. I, yeah. I already am deep faked. You technically are, already are. Thankfully, I'm the only one. Well, me and a company in Montreal are the only ones with access to my deep fake voice. But so watch out. Watch out for those counterfeit paper boys episodes. Or, yeah, I mean, watch out for them in a good way. Check them out. Let us know. how They're, they're probably better than let this. Let us know how they do. Yeah. <laughs> rate, rate and subscribe, please. So, James, what are you going to be talking about today? Well, Charlie, in a continuing theme from last week's episode on planetary science, I thought I'd go for that other moon that is named with the letter E (laughs) and is not that far away from Enceladus that you talked about last week. And I thought I would talk about water because there's been another big discovery in interplanetary science on the moon Europa. Europa. Okay. Okay. I have two thoughts. One. Europa is very far away from Enceladus. <laughs> it's a whole different planet. Not from the map that I saw in kindergarten. Oh, that's true. Okay. Yeah. Two, real mainstream choice there, James. Europa. Europa. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Enceladus. That's the hipster. It's kind of this that's new... I mean, you know, I was talking about Enceladus before it was cool, but, you know. Ever <laughs> but, since our episode last week blew up and changed the course of world history and... Now that everyone's talking about Enceladus because of us. Well, this is sort of like an 80s revival where like mm. Enceladus has gotten, it was so indie and hit that now it's the cool thing. Europa's back on the map. Europa's vintage. Europa's vintage. Dude, you're so right. Yeah. Europa, they were like, oh, wow, cool in the late 90s. It's like mom jeans. Yeah. Europa's making a total comeback. <laughs> All right. I'm pumped. It's the mom jeans of the solar <laughs> it's system. The mom jeans. Uh, so you said it's a discovery relating to water on europa can you elaborate on that yeah absolutely so water has been a big topic of europa uh, ever since the galileo mission which launched i think in 1995 and ended in 2003 and with hubble the hubble space telescope 
more observations were made. So we've had this hunch for a long time that there's been water. But the reason this recent research has made the news and why it's so important is that this is the first uh, measurement that unequivocally looked for water. And there, I say unequivocally in quotes um, <laughs> because like science, there's always some nuance to that statement. Okay. But essentially the other measurements weren't specifically looking for water. They were looking for hydrogen and oxygen, which could be a different signature. Okay. Wow. So, th okay. This that's is one of these things that I totally have taken for granted in my life, mm -hmm. which, I mean, this is a real, this is like a zeroth world problem, not even first world. I thought that we already knew there was water on Europa. We have, we've had pretty good hunches. So we've seen like maybe the signatures that would indicate, yes, there's water, but we haven't directly observed water. Yes. Besides the ice that's all over it. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it kind of feels like an episode of Groundhog's Day where it's like, you've, you're like, haven't I heard this news every year for the past 10 years? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But the, that's the difference is like this paper that all these news articles were talking about, they specifically sought out measurements of water and they used a method that actually let them do that. Okay, so From ground observations. So what do the news articles pick up? So a lot of the news articles were just covering the fact that water was confirmed above Jupiter's moon Europa. So uh, NASA Goddard had a release that said, NASA scientists confirm water vapor on Europa. Science alert said, NASA just confirmed there are water plumes above the surface of Jupiter's moon Europa. This is a bit of a deep cut, but just, just to show how this has been in the conversation for a long time, I actually pulled up a good Bill Nye video as well from 2014. Oh, nice. So it's not specifically relevant to the specific research, but he, Bill Nye had this episode that said, we may discover life on Europa. Um, and he talks for like five minutes about, about water on Europa. But what's interesting, like reading this paper and looking back is like, well, these are kind of like, they weren't confirmed measurements per se. These were more like assumptions. Yes. So why don't, can you give me, before you tell me what the paper is, can you give me a little bit of background on Europa then? Because maybe I'm kind of misunderstanding the timeline of all this. And again, I sort of take for granted what I know because I sort of work in this, you know, tangential to this field and I like this stuff. But a lot of people may not even know what Europa is and that there's liquid water and all that stuff. Yeah. And it doesn't help that I just did a very deep dive into the water problem on Europa. Um, it's just exciting. But Europa is one of the four Galilean moons around mm. Jupiter. So these are the moons that were observed by Galileo in the 17th century. Mm. And it is the smallest of the four moons, sixth largest moon in the solar system. Wait, okay, that's crazy. Yeah. That means that the four Galilean moons are in the top six. Yes. So, wow. The, Europa is about the size of our moon, to put it into perspective. Wow. Okay, so pretty big. I mean, our moon is huge in comparison to most. Mm-hmm. So, one crazy fact about Europa, it has an orbital period around Jupiter of three days. What? Three and a half days. Are you serious? Yeah. That thing like is scary. This thing is like buzzing by. Yeah, and Jupiter's huge, so like the distance that it's covering is probably... It's probably moving fast. Yeah. Moving very fast. Okay. So, one of the reasons that Europa is even of interest is that it's believed to have these huge oceans underneath uh, an ice crust. Hmm. So... To give you an idea of how big these oceans are, they contain more water than all of Earth's oceans. Wait, are you serious? 
Yeah. All beneath the ice surface. Yes. Is that just because, you know, they cover the whole surface, whereas ours only covers part of the surface? Or I guess so. Yeah. How do they even know that? And how do they estimate that? Or is that a whole nother episode? So I don't, I'm, I think there are actual papers that discuss that. They think that there are, that there is a huge ocean based on what we talked about, like in last week's episode, this idea of tidal forces or tidal flexing, as they call it. Hmm. So basically, as the planet is orbiting around Jupiter or its host planet, it's experiencing these changes in gravitational force. So it's contracting and expanding. Hmm. And this generates heat, which melts ice and allows for the existence of these oceans uh, so far away from the sun, where normally you would just have ice. Okay, so the heat on the inside is causing it to be liquid, but the, it can't be all the way around the surface because, you know, space is cold. So the part that's exposed to yep. space is frozen, but the rest of it is liquid. Yes. Wow. Yep. Okay, that's really cool. So these plumes were actually, they've been witnessed in the past. Galileo witnessed them. Uh, this is actually... Wait, Galileo... The astronomer or the mission? <laughs> Sorry, let me specify. Galileo, the mission okay. that was launched in the Observed late plumes coming off of Europa. Yes. That is crazy. Not yeah. as crazy as if, you know, our boy Galileo had observed them, but... Yeah, but what was even more interesting about this was they didn't even realize that they had witnessed a plume until they went back and looked at the data afterwards. This was like they were re-analyzing like years analyzing later data. Or something? Yeah, years Whoa. later. That's crazy. Yes. Dude, I mean, there's probably still so much stuff hidden in all the data from these missions. They just collect so much data. Yeah. yeah. You can imagine like, all right, here's my tangent. Okay. This is one of the cool things about astronomy still and like planetary science, especially since like all of NASA's data is made public. Yeah. It's one of the few scientific disciplines where like you could make a huge breakthrough as an amateur. Totally. And people still do. Yeah, totally. I think all of the like Juno probe that's now around Jupiter, all of like that imaging data is like unprocessed. They just put it out there mm -hmm. and literally rely on people to turn it into real pictures. Like NASA doesn't even do that work. Yeah, I think most recently the Indian Space Agency, ISRO, tried to launch a lunar lander that unfortunately crashed. Mm, yeah. And I think it was just a citizen scientist that actually like by sifting through images that they put out into the public, found the, oh, no the crash site. Yeah. I mean, I saw the news that they had found the site. And it's one of those things where headlines say, NASA just identified. But that's so cool. Yeah, he tweeted like the response letter from NASA. That's and they so were like, cool. thanks for finding this. <laughs> um, that's really cool. Yeah. So Okay, so we observed them with the Galileo mission to Jupiter. We have also observed them uh, with Hubble. Really? Yes. But again, we observe plumes, but the content of the plumes uh, is somewhat of a mystery still. We knew that they contained hydrogen and we knew that they contained oxygen, but we didn't know if that was the combination in water or other molecules or just individual atoms. Okay, I see. So Hubble observed something. They did some analysis. It wasn't H2O per se. Yes. Okay. So stuff is spewing out. Stuff is spewing out and there's stuff on this, there's stuff in the atmosphere. But one of the things that's still unknown with Europa is, is how these constituents get into the atmosphere, whether it's what's called an exogenic process. So as the surface is bombarded with radiation, like ionizing radiation, 
um, or is exposed to the vacuum in space, these constituents get pulled into the atmosphere. That would explain, you know, you could imagine some level of like molecules that you would witness. You can predict that based on those processes. Yeah, and there are okay. probably models on models on models yeah. trying to do that. Or whether this is what's known as an endogenic process where there's something originating underneath the surface of the crust that's spewing these particles out. I see. Like an like internal energy source. Yeah. Or uh, like water vapor under pressure that suddenly is released and spewed up into the atmosphere. Like a geyser or something. Like a geyser. Yeah. Like okay. Old Faithful. So I'm guessing that brings us then to this paper, which is going to answer this question. Yeah. Okay. Well, so what's... I mean, it's going to put forth some very good explanations for what might be happening. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, <laughs> we could put that at the beginning of most papers that we cover on this show. Yes. But so this paper is looking to answer what's in these plumes and is it endogenic or exogenic? Yes. And so to understand that, I think it's cool just to explain at least first, this measurement from um, Hubble Space Telescope in 2012. Okay. I mentioned that using Hubble and observing Europa, they had said that they, you know, found water, but they found hydrogen and oxygen. They were actually looking at the auroral emission of hydrogen and oxygen that are in high abundance. So the same way, like, we observe auroras here. Oh, like the northern lights. Like the northern lights. So they're looking yeah. at, like, plasma. Yeah. Whoa. And so they were looking, I think, at the, the signature of that. Wait, um, does Europa have a magnetic field? Um, That's a good question. I mean, I know Jupiter has a very strong one. So it does have a weak magnetic field. Interesting. Because I know you need a magnetic field to have an aurora. Yes. I, I mean, I hope that some planetary scientist isn't listening to that and cringing, but I think that's how it works. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know any... I don't know, like nearly anything about europa's magnetic field i just googled it but <laughs> but so hubble observed these molecules by looking at its aurora yes okay and then um i think galileo had a magnetometer and there's something about having an ocean too that affects the magnetic field hmm. something about eddy currents and stuff so i think hmm. that gave them some indication there's an ocean as well but like i mentioned the problem is that it's you have no idea how you're measuring hydrogen and oxygen and what combination they're in okay so, are you going to stop teasing me now and tell me what the paper is? Uh, yeah. I've been trying to squeeze this out of you for... Yeah. <laughs> so, the paper is a measurement of water vapor amid a largely quiescent environment on Europa. First author is L. Paganini, and this was published in Nature Astronomy on November 19th, 2019. Cool. So, just a few weeks ago. Back-to-back -back Nature Astronomy episodes. Yeah. Way to go, Nature Astronomy. Yeah. We're just on a real planet kick here. Yes. Thanks, PBS. It really <laughs> turned me on to this whole thing. PBS is great. Yeah. Um, the authors are from uh, NASA Goddard, American University in Washington, D.C., the Royal Institute for Technology in Stockholm, and the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas. Cool. So, well, uh, welcome to Paper Boys. Um, thanks for joining us. You know, now we've started the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Now that you finally told me the paper yeah longest intro ever dude you gotta just interrupt me <laughs> no, no 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 that was all good background i think we needed to know all that stuff to now understand what this paper is doing yes so we've kind of figured out how they determine there might be water there and how they make these measurements what is what are they specifically doing in this paper then so what's different about this is that 
they're using near infrared spectrometry to actually make measurements of Europa. Uh, can you break that one down a little bit? Yeah. So basically in 2016, they started making measurements um, at the 10 meter Keck Observatory at the top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Okay. 10 meters is very large. That's the size of the telescope. I think so. That's really cool. I don't know a ton about the spectrometry instruments, but, but yeah, test must be 10 meters. So something's 10 meters. What's, but you said it was like near infrared. So spec, so we've talked about this, I think on several episodes before, yeah. but just as a quick recap, spectrometry is you measure the, the light that's coming at you from something. And based on the wavelengths of that light, you can kind of tell different signatures of what it's composed of yes. or what it's coming from. So like and often in chemistry, if you're using spectrometry to make a measurement, you provide a specific light source and you see how light is scattered or comes off or mm. is emitted from the thing that you're looking at. And this tells you a lot about the composition. In this case, the light source is actually the sun. So they're mm. looking at solar radiation that's hitting Europa and then they're measuring essentially the light spectrum that comes back in this case it's not the visible light spectrum it's the near and mid infrared spectrum so i'm curious why they're using that spectrum of light because it's a property of water vapor you get a you get emissions in near and mid infrared so is this just something like we never thought to do before i mean like if we know how to look for water vapor how come we weren't doing this um how come hubble didn't do this when it made those measurements that's a good question I don't know if Hubble has a oh. spectrometer. You need, I mean, you need the specific instrument, and it and you, you need also to probably need to schedule it. that wavelength. Yeah, like isn't the James Webb Space Telescope? It's like an infrared telescope, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, they talk about that at the end of this paper. Like they're like, these are the limitations of our work. Launching James Webb will be a huge advance towards like making even better measurements. I see, dude. James Webb is going to change everything. Well, the same way, hopefully. Yeah. Launches. What's the predicted launch date right now? Oh, it, I think it's been pushed back to 2020 something. Dang. Yeah. It'll be exciting though. I mean, this Hubble totally changed everything. Yeah. So can they detect anything besides water vapor with this? Like anything else that might be of interest? Yeah. So it also allows them to detect other materials like ethane, methanol, methane, formaldehyde, ammonia, amongst others. So my knowledge from last week's episode is that those are organic molecules. You might say that. Those and are that's like exactly really why they're interested. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think they specifically didn't dive into it in this paper. There was like a little mention that they're probably preparing another paper, like just about that. About the organic stuff. Yeah. Milk it for all the I mean, formaldehyde and cyanide you can get. probably found some. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, they would just say like, we didn't find anything. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. So, but so, okay, let's go back to the title real quick. I mentioned that there's this new... They're using this method that hasn't been done before. There's water vapor. But you may have heard that keyword quiescent. Like, with mm. all the hype, what do you think they found? I think they found roiling geysers spewing water vapor out and, you know, a bunch of bugs in it. and <laughs> Yeah, bugs and life and all this stuff. Yeah, it's some guy surfing on the plume, you know. The silver surfer. Yeah. <laughs> or Paul Rudd, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> out there surfing yeah this is one of the interesting things reading the headlines and then reading the paper itself so they made 17 observations of europa over a 
one year period from 2016 to 2017. Okay. Longer than a year. Of the 17, they measured a water plume in one. Really? Observation. Wow. So, so it's kind of almost like a fluke. 16 out of 17, they didn't notice anything. So not like Old Faithful at all. Not like Old Faithful at all. Wow. Old Unfaithful. Old Unfaithful, yeah. that's That was my nickname in my first marriage. <laughs> <laughs> You're on a roll with these <laughs> bad old marriage jokes. <laughs> um, and they talk about this in the paper. Some of this is the limitation of the instrument itself. It's hard to measure. You know, the, you just me- imagine on a high level, like, Light has to go from the sun, it has to reach Europa, it has to come back. Europa, if it's if it has a three and a half day orbit, like it's moving really fast, you only you have a limited time to watch it. Yeah. Like they have a table of their observation times. And if you look, it's like most of their observation times are an hour max. That's, so which is pretty good. But Yeah, I mean that actually sounds kind of long. Wait, oh you mean like they only have an hour in which they can see it? Yes. Time on source. Oh, I see. It's not like an hour-long exposure. I don't know how long the actual like film exposure is. This okay. Is time. So they say time on source. Maybe that is long. It feels short, I guess. It does. You. I mean, you normally you think of things in space as just kind of like being stationary, especially when you're talking about like, well, Jupiter, it's got a long orbit. It's not really moving. You could probably just point a telescope at it and see it whenever. Yeah. But Europa is like zipping around. Zipping around. They also wanted to try to do a survey, I think, of like the entire planet. Because even, I think, based on the, uh, yeah. the the field of view of the instrument, they sort of have to point it at a specific latitude or longitude because it's a slit. So you point it at the planet and it's like, all right, we're going to cover this range right now. I see. I see. So maybe they missed something too. They probably, yeah, you know. Maybe they never saw one side of Europa or something. Like the way we can never see the dark side of the moon or whatever. Yeah, I think they did actually, they didn't end up covering everything, but it's like okay. you can't cover everything all the time. In one, and you can't get it all in one go. Yes. Okay, so 17 observations, This and in 16 of them, they saw nothing. In 16, they saw nothing. But so in one, what did they, yeah, what did this one special measurement like actually show? So what they detected was, if you imagine the output of a spectrogram gives you sort of like, the amount of light, the amount, the intensity at different frequencies. Mm-hmm. And there's a peak at, at the frequency of light they would expect to be coming from Europa. And this was interesting because it's moving so fast, they have to take into account Doppler shifts. Yeah, um, wow. So it's off from like what they would expect to see for terrestrial water. Oh. It's slightly shifted. So you can't just like calibrate it straight up against like water vapor in the lab. Yeah. You have to account for all those effects. Yep. And That's cool. Yes, there was a spike. What like ended up losing me a little bit is they had to do a lot of like signal processing Hmm. of this image because they're like, I guess it lost me a little bit, but it was also a really cool part of the paper. They basically set up three conditions that they had to meet to say definitively that they detected it. They basically detected it within like three sigma, which means that if they, they measured it a thousand times, it would only happen three times by chance. So there's a three in 1,000 chance that it's like a fluke, that it's a f- false measurement. Yes. 99.7% confidence, I guess. Okay. So so there, so this is very clean data, is what you're saying. It's pretty clean. That sounds very clean to me. No, I mean... <laughs> Not to split hairs, but... 
Well, I mean, if it was really clean, they wouldn't have a whole section in the paper explaining like why this is enough. Okay, so you said there were like three. That's my feeling. Things. Yep. That they really needed to like lay out to really prove to you that this was a water vapor. What are those three things? So they said the least squares fitting of the Europa data and the fluorescence model had to be consistent with detection at greater than or equal to three sigma. So I think they had a model and the measurements and they said our measurement has to be better than three sigma and our prediction from the model, like this plume, the amount of water vapor that we detected has to be greater than three sigma also in the model like that has to match up okay so we can we check that box yes they got their three sigma measurement one thing i didn't quite get is like it seems it sounds like the second thing that was contingent on was that the measurements had to match the model but i think this is like it has to match in a different way because the others the the least squares fit this is where some of the statistical processing i don't quite get yeah maybe a little over our heads (laughs) so okay so the first two are maybe semantics that are probably extremely important that we couldn't really do justice yeah so okay to quote the paper says both co-added spectra of the European lines and the synthetic model had to match so okay so the first okay let me see if i can digest this the first point is that the data has to be clean enough to be 99.7 percent confident that it is what we think it is yeah the second point is that the data like the spectrogram that we see has to actually line up with the predicted spectrogram of what we're looking for. Yeah. So I think the spectral lines have to line up. Okay. So, I mean, the first one is like, there's a chance that when you just point your telescope out into space at nothing, there's a 0.3% chance that you're just going to get back some signature that says water vapor, even though there's no water vapor. Yeah. Point it to the ground. (laughs) Okay. So we've determined that, that that's way too improbable. So we know we're looking at something. Yep. And then the second one is it matches the model. The actual lines, you know, our model that tells us the Doppler shift should be this and yada, yada. And so it actually matches up there. I think so. I think that's what I was getting at. Okay. So then what's the third one? So then the third one is they do a correlation analysis of the model and the data. And this is a way to measure. It's another way of measuring how well they match. And they had a threshold of like 0.4. If they match perfectly, I think the correlation would be 1, 1.00. And they said... As long as our predicted model and our measurements match greater than 0.4, we'll check that third box. Okay. And what did they actually get? Uh, more than 0.4. Okay. Well, so yeah, I mean, obviously they meet these three criteria. Yes. I okay. Mean, I get like taking maybe a slight step back here, kind of more to like the process of science. All of this is sort of bringing up a lot of questions for me. Yeah. Not like skepticism, but just... Wondering about how they came to this conclusion and why they were looking for it in the first place. Why did they take 17 measurements? Did they keep looking until they found it and the 17th one they found it? Or did they have some scheduled time and they found it on like the eighth one and then they kept, or did they find it on the first one and they were like, holy crap, we need to try and find some more to confirm this and they could never confirm it again. So then they kind of like, backed their way into here's how we know that our first measurement is still valid no so that's a good point and they do outline that in a table probably to to answer people who had that same question okay. so they measured it on about the seventh or eighth oh okay of the measurements so about halfway in so they were looking they were very persistently looking yes they found it and then they kept looking and they kept looking they didn't like stop once they found it and they didn't keep going because they found it nope this was all laid out beforehand 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So they continued through. Um, that tamps down my, you know, not skepticism, but whatever the sister to skepticism is. Curiosity, I guess. Yeah. And I think because so they talk about the signal to noise ratio, to make a definitive statement, I think they could have done so if they had a higher signal to noise ratio without, you know, lining up these other boxes that they had to check. Yeah. But some of this is just, it's hard to get a good signal from so far, small planet. Yeah. And so they, they had measured set it. this up as a way of being like, okay, we have this data. Do we think this is, how confident are we? So, uh, yeah. And, and again, the reason why I asked this is that, well, they laid out these three criteria that they need to meet in order to prove that it's real. How come one of those criteria isn't, we measured it repeatedly? Yes. And the answer is probably because they didn't measure it repeatedly. So it just begs the question of like, well, why wasn't it repeatable and all those things. I mean, I totally believe the measurement. Those three criteria to me sound legit and well thought out and, and convincing. But yeah, you just hope that maybe someone else is going to start looking and start to see more. Yeah. And that's what they say. They That's why they're specifically excited about the James Webb Space Telescope, because they think that should give them that boost in signal to noise ratio that would help them to make a more definitive statement about this. I see. Also, there's Europa Clipper that's hopefully launching in, I think, 2025 that will hopefully fly through the plume and make like in situ measurements over there. Yeah. And then there's also, this is a great acronym, JUICE. JUICE? That's headed out in 2022. What is JUICE? JUICE is the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Wow. Juice. That's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, and I actually haven't heard that much about Juice. But so. it, how come everyone's all obsessed with Jupiter's icy moons? Don't Dude, they don't know, know about this? Like, there's this total, you know, real hole in the wall moon <laughs> over at Saturn called Enceladus. <laughs> yeah. Do you think the Mater D can get us in? Yeah. I, well, yeah. I know the Mater D. Uh, the owner's a great guy. Yeah. And uh, my brother went to college with him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. My buddy surfed with Paul Rudd on Enceladus. And- <laughs> They can get us in. I think, you know, after you after you blew the news last week with Enceladus, it's not going to be the same anymore. Everyone's going there now. Uh, yeah, it just, you know, it really got ruined once they put a Whole Foods in. Yeah, all these TikTok videos about Enceladus. <laughs> yeah. Whole Foods. Whole Foods brought the whole down. Yeah. Whole establishment down. Okay. So, sorry that I just, I derailed you with first a bad technical question and then a bad joke. I'll never forgive you for that one, Charlie. <laughs> So I'm curious now, at the beginning, you were talking about this whole like endogenic versus exogenic question. Did this measurement help them answer that at all? Yeah. I mean, truthfully, long story short, they're like, okay, for the amount that we think we're measuring and the models that we have, an exogenic process just doesn't explain the amount that we saw. So they saw a relatively big plume. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Does that mean it was large or small? How, How big is this plume? So I can, I mean, I can tell you how big it is quantitatively, okay. but it's not going to mean anything because it's just numbers of molecules. Okay. And it's like 10 to the 28th or something like that. Molecules like per explosion or? Just like molecules detected. Oh, okay. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> 10 so, to the 28th, you say? Yeah. So from their modeling and uh, from the theory that they have, basically... They would expect that a plume would have like 10 to 100 times, would introduce 10 to 100 times more molecules in the air um, than then an exogenic process, than the process that's happening on the surface through radiation oh, and stuff like I that. See. Okay. So like radiation is kind of hitting the ice and maybe releasing some water vapor and... 
They could yeah. predict what they would see if that were the case. Yeah. So the amount that they measured is sort of on the same order as what Hubble was measuring. Oh, really? I mean, you know, within a factor of 10 to 100, but these these elevated levels. Yeah. 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 Like significantly higher than, than what would just be there. Yes. Without the plumes. Yes. So, okay. so, so they rule out exogenic processes. They say it's internal heating. They say uh, internal heating. Well, internal heating, so it could be, they're not totally sure. They think that these eruptions of the plume material are linked to tidal stresses, but they're not really sure what the like fracture would look like or the vent. And so they do some like back of the envelope calculations where they assume a cylindrical vent on things like this Hmm. but they're like they say it they're like you know these are first order approximations and we really need better measurements to start figuring this out yeah i mean you think about like you know last episode we were talking about in 2005 we discovered that enceladus had plumes Mm -hmm. and now you know we got the fortune of 10 years of being able to observe that up close and we know so much more now we are going to send a dedicated mission to just europa yeah think of like and it's like a flagship like huge mission yes think of how much we are going to know about europa in 20 years oh it's gonna be crazy still be learning about europa like in 40 years so the and so one thing that i don't know because i don't work at jpl and i am not working on this project but like i wonder if you're the mission manager or someone high up or anyone on europa clipper for that matter if you see these results and then you're like, why aren't we going to Enceladus? Because because of the infrequence, potentially, of these plumes. If your whole goal oh. is to actually like fly through one of them or detect it. I, and, you know, I'm admitting ignorance here. I, I don't know if that's part of Europa Clipper's mission still is to fly through a plume. I think it, I mean, last that I knew that was part of their mission. Okay. I actually saw a really cool talk at a conference last or this past year where they're developing like a microscope that will collect samples from this the plume as they fly through and then look for actual life in them that's nuts yeah as like a potential instrument that might fly on it but cool yeah it's like curiosity in space yeah it is i mean it's a i mean curiosity is in space laboratory think about it you know so are we man yeah so we're just floating on this rock bro Just surfing the geysers with Paul Rudd. <laughs> Where did I get that? I don't know. But Probably like from uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Mm. Paul Rudd's the surf instructor. Oh, he is. Yes. Wow. Great call. Yeah. He's also just a chill bro. Probably would totally expected. He would love space. Surf space guys. I don't know if he knows space yet, but he would love it if he did. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Space is, it's kind of this like indie thing that a lot of celebrities probably don't know much about. Probably yeah, haven't heard about it. Yeah. Oh, dude, you would blow his mind with Enceladus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he'd blow my mind with the crazy waves he's catching there. It would be, you'd both have something to add to the conversation. Okay, but speaking of minds being blown, this whole thing is kind of blowing my mind. So, like this telescope measurement just told us so much more about Europa than we ever knew. We just discovered actual water there. I feel like we're glossing over that fact. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's water on Enceladus. Based on these measurements. Europa. <laughs> I'm in your head. In Europa. <laughs> God. They just both had to start with an E. I know. And uh, very interchangeable. Also, it was pretty funny reading this paper. I had to like go back several times because like 
in my mind's voice, I would read European and read European and I'd be like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. Like, that's pretty funny. It's close. Yeah. European. Yeah. I mean, it's huge, right? And I think it's cool to see. We live at a cool time right now where they're prepping the Europa Clipper mission. So at least I'm very excited about this and I think about it often. And it's going to be crazy to think about this like, you know, six more years of anticipation until it launches and then however long until it actually <laughs> arrives there. Cruise time. It'll, be, yeah. it'll be 50 by the time we get some big findings. But it's like this could change the world. And this is what Bill Nye nailed in his video, which we'll post. He's like, okay. This is in 2014. He's like, okay, how much would this cost? Probably $2 billion. It's a big mission, Mm -hmm. but relatively cheap for what you're accomplishing. Yeah. And what you're trying to do, send something to Jupiter. Yeah. He's like, this is the price of a medium coffee paid once by every American taxpayer over a 10-year period. No, you mean like they pay it once and this is funding this like $2 billion project for like 10 years. So it's $2 billion over 10 years. Everyone trips in their cup of coffee. Yeah. You know, we could probably make the same pitch for our Patreon. Yes. If every American just chipped in one cup of coffee, we could have a $2 billion Patreon. <laughs> we could have a $2 billion Patreon. That's money well spent. We could beat NASA to Jupiter. Could... Yes, that would be sick. We could land on Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, uh, go right ahead, guys. It's bulletproof. Let us know when you find the surface. Yeah. No, that's a really good point, though. Like, the return on investment here, you know, maybe not monetary, but like two billion. I mean, how much did we spend on the Large Hadron Collider? Probably way, way more than that. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, and what did that ever do for us? You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, we were talking in between episodes, like everything has to try to sell like finding life. But if you do, that changes everything. That changes life for everyone on the planet. I know. Okay, for so A, yes, I completely it, agree. I'm not putting down your comment. I'm just no, saying, no, no, like, no, no, no. In this case, it's like very true, though. Yeah. Well, so I want to reiterate my comment <laughs> since it was off air. But so A, I agree. Like it's what I am devoting my life to is like the pursuit of trying to determine if there is life elsewhere in our solar system. Yeah. Because I agree. I think that would be the most important thing ever discovered of all time that would change everything about everything we know. Yeah. Right. On the other hand, sometimes I just get annoyed. I think I I I meant I made this comment in reference to that PBS documentary, The Planets. Uh-huh. It's almost like propaganda. Like all they can ever talk about is like, and and this this is a process that they think could be the way that life started here on Earth, making Europa potentially hospitable for life. And yeah, and you're like, okay, I, I get it, I get it. There could be life in other places. Like, let's talk about just the other cool science going on here. You know, it reminds me of like when you watch movies today or like shows. Like, I haven't seen Mad Men, but I kind of imagine like Mad Men would be like it. But like that sort of like '60s like TV marketing thing. It's like, oh, great product. Like, hey, can you just can you just add something about discovering life to your research? It's like, great. Okay, yeah, that's perfect. That's just what we need. Yeah, and you're like. Ugh. Okay, fine. But okay, Mad Men's a great analogy. My brother had this complaint about it. In Mad Men, it's like, yes, it takes place in the 60s. And they just shove that down your throat all the time. Like, oh, they go to the doctor. The doctor is like ripping on a cigarette. And you're like, okay, I get it. It's the 60s. Like, Jesus. <laughs> and then it's just like someone is like racist casually. And you're like, okay, I get it. It's the 60s. <laughs> like, you don't need to keep fucking like, you don't need to keep jamming it down my throat, you know? Yeah. It's like, I get it. 
We're looking for life in the solar system. You don't need to say that every five minutes of this five-hour documentary series. Yes. You know? Yes. Sometimes we can just spend a whole episode talking about geysers on Triton, you know? Cool trenches. <laughs> yeah. Bro. So my other comment that I wanted to make earlier, now we're just getting way off in the weeds, and I apologize. No, paper's done. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Everyone tune out now while I just go on some stupid nerdy rant. Does it ever just kind of make you sad that we, like you were talking about how It'll be 20 years before we get to really see the ben- like the results of Europa Clipper. I was reading about this other mission that this group is proposing to go to Neptune and do a flyby of its moon, Triton. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, well, the flyby encounter opportunity is in 2038. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, even if this thing gets funded, I won't get to see the answer to these questions that I'm, like, wondering so curiously right now yeah. for 20 years. Like... I can't just Google, like, I'm reading this thing. I'm like, man, I wonder what Triton does look like up close. I can't just Google that. I yeah. mean, we have some pictures from Voyager, but, like, I don't know. No, it's It just crazy. makes me sad that, like, you only have this one life to live. And, like, it would be cool if we were born 500 years in the future and we could, like, go to Europa instead of having to sit here and wonder what it's like there. Absolutely. Well, so maybe this is one of the reasons, too, that, like, you know, people who work at NASA often stay until like their 70s or 80s like they don't quit like they have to like kick them out people work for free sometimes like i was at a conference conference two years ago and they were talking people were sharing like war stories except like stories of when things went wrong on space missions yeah and this guy you know everyone's like said their thing like my fish was this much bigger yeah <laughs> and then this guy this like salty old dude comes in and he's like let me tell you about the time the solar panel didn't deploy on Skylab. Oh, man. And then... Like, real old-timer. Yeah, he, like, he got started working on some thermal heat exchange thing for Apollo and stuff, yeah. too. That's You're crazy. Like, damn, dude. I mean, there are people who are still working on the Voyager missions. Yeah. Meanwhile, so the cool. people who originally started that mission, many of them are long dead. Yeah. You know? But that's still an active mission. I mean, we could do so many, we could do a whole like week, week long, <laughs> one episode. We could no, do we an do, indefinite we could do podcast on just, just Voyager. Voyager. Yeah. yeah. So yes, it does make me sad. <laughs> yeah. It does. I don't know. It's just, I think I joked with you before. There's probably like some large compound German word or like some Japanese, you know, poetic term that describes the sadness at not getting to <laughs> explore other planets or something. But yes, uh, you know, I just feel like it's one of those things that, Maybe doesn't quite have a word in English. That'll be your crowning achievement is to create that word. Coining that word? Yes. Specifically as it relates to interplanetary exploration. Yeah. It's called um, Hang Ten with Paul Rudd. <laughs> hang Ten with Paul Rudd. That's the word. Oh, mom, I'm not going to get out of bed today. I'm just feeling a lot of Hang Ten with Paul Rudd. <laughs> I just wish I could Hang Ten with Paul Rudd today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're gonna make sure uh keep an eye out for our new paperboy shirts that hang yeah. ten with Paul Rudd. I mean, I'm sure we're gonna get sued immediately upon publishing those, but dude, Paul Rudd's a good guy. That's true. He's a good dude. He knows the Mater D. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for bearing with my dumb rant there. And thanks for bringing in this awesome paper. You're welcome. I yeah, kinda I love mean, that we did back to back planetary science episodes. The double the double E's of the solar system. Double E's, nice. Yes. Just like you, you're a double E. Actually, yeah. Yeah. I am electrical engineer. It was my pleasure, Charlie. It was my pleasure. If you're listening and you're enjoying these episodes, please check out our Patreon, 
patreon.com slash paperboyspod. We have a lot of exciting bonus episodes coming out. We have one each month, and we're adding new video footage starting with last month's episode. Uh, so definitely check it out. And please forgive us for the December video. Don't judge us it's on that beta. content. It's yeah. beta. Beta tested. We gave it to you for free. Don't complain. <laughs> <laughs> or actually complain so we can make it better. Yeah, no, that, that but... <laughs> was a joke. And we are making it better because of feedback that we got from patrons. So yeah. thank you to the patrons who bared with us for that one. We bought new cameras, like actually really nice cameras. Yeah, we were just messing with them before we started recording. I think that'll do a lot to help. We're going to get some better lighting and uh, just make it a more immersive experience. Yeah, the whole thing is going to get better. And uh, if you uh, pledge on the Patreon at the Pi Dollar level, $3.14, you will get access in perpetuity to those videos at that tier. Starting in 2020, we're going to move the video up to the uh, gravitational constant level, 667, because these videos are A, expensive to, we bought the equipment for those, and um, it's sort of an extra bonus tier. But so if you join in 20, before 2020, you will get that content at reduced price, and that will be yours forever. As, as kind of a thank you for being an early supporter of Paperboys as we continue to grow. Yeah. And if you haven't already, check us out on social media. Again, the handle is at PaperboysPod. We love interacting with fans. You get a lot of great recommendations, um, some interesting discussions, sharing of links, sharing of good times generally. <laughs> so check us out. Instagram, Twitter, and email. Paperboy. Oh, one thing we forgot to hype up is the next two weeks we are so it's christmas break it's kind of hard for james and i to prepare so many episodes in the week before to try and pre-record everything so we decided to do something a little bit fun uh next week for christmas we're going to be doing an episode about santa claus i don't recommend that you listen with your kids <laughs> uh, yeah just spoiler alert <laughs> must be this big to listen to the podcast yeah i think make sure anyone listening along with you is over the age of 10 or so or doesn't care about Santa. Yes. And then the week after that is going to be New Year's. And we're going to do kind of a whole like year in review. We're going to talk about a couple of the papers that we didn't get to do in 2019 that we were really excited about, but that we just didn't have time for. So um, we hope you enjoy those. They're hopefully maybe a lower commitment engagement level type episode. Throw it on in the background and, you know, laugh along with us. Thank you very much. And please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening.